Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Today, the ruins of ancient Rome are still impressive. From Hadrian's Wall in Scotland to the Colosseum in Rome and the remains of Palmyra in Syria, they are physical reminders of the greatest empire in the history of Europe. Today, I will talk about an important milestone in Rome's path to greatness, the Battle of Zama, when they defeated probably their most dangerous enemy, Hannibal. Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, The Battle of Zama, 202 BC, Part 1 of 2. In the last two podcasts, we looked at the battles of Marathon and of Galgamela, both between Greeks and Persians, and we saw Alexander the Great conquer the Persian Empire. His early death in 323 BC marks the beginning of the Hellenistic Age, a period when Greeks held the ascendancy in the Middle East and the Eastern Mediterranean. Today, I will take a look to Central and Western Mediterranean, where another conflict developed between the two main regional powers there. One of these was based in the city of Rome, the other in the city of Carthage, situated directly opposite on the African coast, in modern-day Tunisia. Their conflict is nowadays given the name of the Punic Wars, named after the Roman word for the Phoenicians. They lasted from 264 BC to 146 BC, and are divided into three periods, the First, Second and Third Punic Wars. I will focus on the conclusion of the Second Punic War, specifically the Battle of Zama in 202 BC, fought between two of the greatest generals of all time, Hannibal and Scipio Africanus. I will take a look at the events leading up to this battle, starting with a brief summary of the history of Rome up to this time. First, a word about the two main sources for this period. We are fortunate that two highly regarded accounts of the Punic Wars have survived. One is by a Greek named Polybius. He had the misfortune of being deported to Rome after his father led a failed rebellion against Roman control of Macedonia. But this did give him the opportunity to work as a tutor to the sons of some of Rome's leading politicians, and therefore had the advantage of knowing personally some of the people involved in the events he described. Writing in the 2nd century BC, he is a contemporary author of events. The other main source, in contrast, was written by a Roman historian, Livy, many years after the Punic Wars. He lived from 59 BC to AD 17, and was on familiar terms with the first Roman emperor, Augustus. 
Having these two sources gives us the chance to compare and contrast the two texts to help identify individual author bias. Naturally, Polybius's work has a Greek bias and Livy's a Roman one. Also, the styles are very different. While Polybius's work is regarded as more scholarly, Livy is a more skilled at building a dramatic narrative, including character development, and is less cluttered with specifics. That said, let's take an extremely brief look at the history of early Rome up to the Punic Wars. Archaeological evidence around the city of Rome suggests at least 10,000 years of human presence, but its history traditionally starts from the legend of its founding in about 753 BC by the twin brothers Romulus and Remus. According to this legend, they were abandoned to die in the river Tiber, but saved by a series of miraculous interventions, when the river carried them to safety, and a she-wolf named Lupa found and suckled them. Over the centuries, the city became first the capital of the Roman kingdom, ruled by a series of seven kings, according to tradition, and then the Roman Republic from 510 BC, ruled by a senate. The highest political position of the Republic was the consul, two of whom were elected at the beginning of each year. As they say, Rome wasn't built in a day. It accumulated power over the centuries by both military victories over and selective assimilation with its neighbours, namely the Etruscans to its north, the Samnites in the hills of central Italy, and the then significant Greek populations of southern Italy. The last threat to Roman hegemony within the Italian peninsula came in 281 BC, when Tarentum, a major Greek colony, enlisted the aid of Pyrrhus of Epirus from across the Adriatic in northwestern Greece. Some of Pyrrhus's victories, though successful, caused him heavy losses, which over a series of battles with Rome he could not sustain, leading to the term Pyrrhic victory. The Romans would always go at great lengths to justify their military actions, describing their conflicts as purely defensive, but somehow these actions would always end up expanding Roman territory. One such expansion to the south, into Sicily, brought them into conflict with the other major regional power, namely Carthage. Today, the ruins of the ancient city of Carthage lie in the suburb of Tunis, the capital of Tunisia, the closest point in northern Africa to Sicily. All we have are the results of archaeological excavations in cemeteries. Finds such as terracotta figurines and jewellery provide information on their artistic culture, but nothing about the human dramas that unfolded, or the day-to-day activities and concerns of the civilian population. For this, we depend solely on the Romans, who were unsympathetic, indeed downright hostile, to their great enemy. The city was founded in the 9th century by Phoenician settlers. The Phoenicians were a people who spread from Levant, that is modern-day Israel and Lebanon, and established trading posts around the Mediterranean, of which Carthage was the largest. Other such posts were in North Africa, Spain, Sardinia, Malta and Sicily. One lasting legacy of the Phoenicians is their alphabet. Devised to help with the administration of trade, it is considered to be the ancestor of all modern alphabets.
At that time, the region around Carthage received more rainfall than it does today. The ancient Greek historian Diodorus of Sicily describes the surrounding countryside as abounding with fruit trees and vines, irrigated by canals and pastured with sheep, cattle and horses. As for forms of government, although the Phoenician cities each had their own, they were dependent on Carthage for defence as they had no military forces of their own. In return, they paid tribute to Carthage, but would occasionally revolt if they felt they were paying too much. The Carthaginian army consisted mainly of mercenaries recruited from the various subject territories and so contained a mixture of languages and cultures. Each territory provided different military skills. Numidia, the territory directly west of Carthage, supplied a force of light cavalry armed with spears and javelins. From the Balearic Islands came the formidable slingers armed with two types of sling, one for long range against a densely packed enemy and the other for close quarter. Infantry were provided mainly from the Libyans and also from the Spanish hill tribes who also provided more light cavalry. Their horses would carry a second rider ready to dismount and fight as an infantryman. Lastly, elephants were used to charge the enemy, trampling them, breaking their ranks and instilling terror. The native Carthaginians themselves made up only a small part of the army, confined to a unit of heavy infantry called the Sacred Band. The navy, though, was manned entirely by Carthaginians and played a vital role. Their warships were long and narrow to accommodate the greatest possible number of oarsmen and so make them faster. At the outbreak of the Punic Wars, their navy was far superior to that of the Romans, who had up to then only been interested in land warfare. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking back today, it might seem inevitable that Carthage and Rome would go to war. But looking again, perhaps it shouldn't have been. The Carthaginians were far more interested in retaining their trading network than military expansion. 
They would only get militarily involved if they saw their trading interests threatened. Meanwhile, Rome had only just established hegemony in the Italian peninsula and would probably not have seemed an immediate threat to Carthage. The two sides had even signed an so-called Third Treaty of Friendship in 279 BC, which, amongst other things, had committed them to go to one another's assistance if attacked. The flashpoint was Sicily, which at that point was contested between Carthage and some Greek settlements in the east of the island, most notably the city of Syracuse. The trigger was provided by a group of adventurers from Campania on the western coast of Italy, who fought as mercenaries for the Greeks against Carthage. They were welcomed into Messana, a town built on a strategic location on the strait between Sicily and Italy. But after a time, the mercenaries became restless and plotted to capture the town. One night they made a surprise attack on the unprepared people, massacring the leading citizens and appropriating their wives and property. After their victory, these mercenaries named themselves the Marmotines. Hiero, the leader of Syracuse, condemned the Marmotines and vowed to avenge their treachery. But the Carthaginians, uncomfortable with the Greek takeover of such a strategic town, stepped in and saved the Marmotines from annihilation. Although the Carthaginians had just saved their lives, the mercenaries had no wish to be their subjects, who would have prevented them from carrying out their trade as pirates. So they appealed to their fellow countrymen in Rome for an alliance. The Romans knew that, on the one hand, agreeing to this would clearly risk war with Carthage for practically the least noble cause imaginable, but on the other hand, it was an excellent opportunity for securing a foothold in Sicily. So soon after, a small Roman force crossed the straits and quickly secured the town of Messana, allowing the Carthaginian garrison to leave unmolested. The Carthaginians and Syracuse responded by allying and forming a joint siege of the town, but their actions were uncoordinated, and once the main Roman army had been able to cross onto the island, it defeated both of them separately. The Romans' determination and overwhelming force quickly persuaded several Greek and Punic cities to reach an accommodation with Rome, including Syracuse. The Carthaginians, not wanting to lose control of Sicily, sent a mercenary army from Spain to Agrigentum on the island's coast. Here they were besieged, but managed to slip through the Roman lines at night, leaving the hapless population to be butchered. With Carthage and Rome now embroiled in the conflict, tensions quickly escalated into a full-scale war. Rome's objective soon became clear, to clear the Carthaginians from Sicily completely. But after the expected quick victory was not achieved, the war started to drag on. Rome, without an effective navy, were unable to siege coastal towns effectively. So in the 250 BCs, they changed strategy. Firstly, they hastily constructed a fleet with designs based on captured Carthaginian ships. And secondly, they took the fight directly to Carthage with an invasion of the African mainland. The Roman army advanced to within a few miles southwest of Carthage, but suffered a heavy defeat in spring 255 BC, and so were forced to again reconsider strategy 
and focused solely on Sicily. The war rolled on inconclusively for another 12 years with heavy losses on both sides until 243 BC when the Roman Senate agreed to construct a fleet of new ships for a fresh attack on Sicily. This time Rome achieved a decisive victory, destroying more than 50 Carthaginian ships. The defeated commander, Hamilcar Barca, with no hope of support, was left to negotiate the best peace terms he could. In the event, both sides were reasonable, and probably keen to end the war. So Hamilcar agreed to withdraw from Sicily and pay a substantial war indemnity. Thus ended the First Punic War, a 24-year-long slogging match which ended in Rome's favour. Rome had now become the most powerful state in the western Mediterranean, its new navy able to prevent seaborne invasion of Italy, control important sea trade routes and invade foreign shores. With their southern border resolved, they then turned their attention elsewhere and in the 220s expanded their power into Cisalpine Gaul to their north and into Illyria on the other side of the Adriatic. Carthage's immediate problem on the war's conclusion was its own mercenaries, who revolted over pay arrears and the unfulfilled promise of recompense after the long years of campaigning. It took three years to put down the rebellion at great cost to Carthaginian lives and resources, just when they least needed it. At this point, Carthage was divided. Some of their leaders wanted to put the war with Rome behind them, forget Sicily, and concentrate efforts more on northern Africa. Others, led by Hamilcar Barca, wished to avenge their defeat and to one day take battle to Rome. Hamilcar, frustrated by, in his opinion, Carthaginian vacillation, took a group of followers to Spain to establish a power base there. The group included his son, Hannibal, who as a boy was made to swear an oath of eternal hatred to Rome. So in the 230s and 220s, Hamilcar and his son-in-law, Hasdrubal, successfully established control over southern and central Spain. When Hasdrubal died in 220 BC, Hannibal was elected unanimously as successor and promptly began to extend Carthaginian territory into the northwestern highlands of Spain. This now brought the Carthaginians back into contact with the Roman sphere of influence. It is unfortunate that the sources are not very clear when describing the cause for the Second Punic War. Polybius states that an agreement was made with Hasdrubal that the Carthaginians would not go north of a river called the Ebro. Today it is believed that this refers to the river Ebro in northern Spain. Presumably in this agreement the Romans would not go south of the river, but this is not explicitly stated. Separately, and it is not known whether before or after this agreement, Rome allied with Saguntum, a town south of the Ebro. Anyhow, while Rome was busy fighting in Illyria, Hannibal captured Saguntum as part of his consolidation of control of northeast Spain. We don't know if Hannibal had in mind, from the day he took command, to carry the war against Rome into Italy. Livy certainly thinks so. There was vigorous debate in the Roman Senate as to how to respond, 
They demanded an explanation from Carthage, who retorted that, as far as they were concerned, no treaty had been broken by the attack on Saguntum. Even the Carthaginian doves, normally reluctant to provoke Rome, agreed that, this time, if the Roman challenge was not taken up, it would do irreparable damage to Punic prestige among the Spaniards, and risk undoing the subjugation of the Iberian Peninsula that had been patiently gone over the last two decades. Rome made its intentions clear in the spring of 218, when two new consuls were assigned the task of taking battle to Carthage, one in Africa and the other, Publius Cornelius Scipio, father of Scipio Africanus, in Spain. They probably expected a repeat of the first victorious Punic War. What they certainly did not expect was for Hannibal to seize the initiative by taking his army all the way from Spain, along the Mediterranean coast, across the Alps and into the heart of Italy. It was a campaign of astonishing daring that would become one of the most famous in history. Hannibal left his brother Hasdrubal in charge of Spain and led a force of 40,000 Carthaginians, Spaniards and Gauls and 60 elephants across hostile territory under constant threat of ambush from local Gallic tribes. In October to November, 218 BC, the army crossed the Alps along steep, windy tracks, made more treacherous by the heavy snow that was now falling. When they finally reached the fertile expanse of the North Italian plains, only 26,000 troops and 20 of the elephants had survived. Although he was joined by a group of Cisalpine Gauls, they were greatly outnumbered by the numbers of men Rome would be able to deploy. But Hannibal's aim was not to conquer Italy. That would clearly have been impossible. The plan became apparent in the way Hannibal treated his prisoners of war. While Roman citizens were treated harshly, exposed to the elements or killed outright, Italian captives were well fed and released after receiving a speech from Hannibal declaring himself their liberator from Roman oppression. Individual regions would hopefully rise up and break up the Roman confederation, reducing it once more to a number of states with regained independence. If Hannibal could inflict enough defeats on the Roman army, the subjugated states would have the courage to rise in revolt. As for battle tactics, Hannibal would become famous for his inventiveness. He would try to use the elements of surprise and flexibilities, as we shall see, against the rigidly linear deployment upon which the Romans relied. Following a first victory in the minor battle of Ticinus, the Carthaginians then met a much larger force in the Battle of Trebia, where Hannibal's tactics proved highly effective. There, the overconfident Roman army, sent to deal with Hannibal, allowed themselves to be provoked into a frontal assault and failed to see that they were being led into a trap. While in the centre, the opposing heavy infantry forces fought hand-to-hand -hand without a decisive result, the Roman flanks yielded to the force of the Punic horsemen and to the charging thrusts of the elephants. At that point, a Carthaginian contingent under Hannibal's brother, Mago, emerged from their hiding place and attacked the rear of the Roman infantry, adding further to the chaos. With their backs to a river, the only escape the Romans was to flee forwards. A few central Roman units bravely managed to break through and kill many Africans and Gauls in the process, 
but the soldiers on the Roman flanks were massacred. It was an undeniable disaster for Rome, and were it not for some horrendous weather, Hannibal might have been able to rout the Romans further and finish off more of them. As it was, the victory gave confidence to the Carthaginians and persuaded the remaining Cisalpine Gauls to join them. In Rome, dealing with Hannibal was now top priority and was the main job of the two new consuls for 217. But instead of working together, the consul Gaius Flaminius set out on his own to confront Hannibal, who was waiting for him at Lake Tresemine. While Hannibal's Spanish and Libyan infantry stood conspicuously on a ridge, the remaining Punic army hid in the surrounding land. Flaminius's army marched straight into the trap and were annihilated, 15,000 perishing on that occasion. Not only that, but a reinforcement army sent to join up with Flaminius was intercepted by a force from Numidia with another decisive Punic victory and heavy Roman losses. Rome was by now in a state of panic. In this kind of situation, they resorted to reviving the position of dictator, that is, the giving of full civil and military powers, but for a limited time. They assigned this role to a former consul, Fabius Maximus. It was a good choice. The new dictator wisely chose not to confront Hannibal directly, but instead to hover, threaten and harry the Carthaginian forces. But the Romans were impatient. Not only was Hannibal left to burn and plunder at will, but the whole situation was doing damage to Roman prestige. So after a year, when the dictatorship lapsed, two new consuls were voted in, with the job of dealing with Hannibal once and for all. Four new legions were mobilised and ordered to join the four already shadowing Hannibal, and so the new consul, Varro, led a force of some 80,000 infantry and 6,000 cavalry to face Hannibal off at Cannae in south-eastern Italy. The Roman plan was to rely on their sheer strength of numbers and the rigidity of the phalanx infantry in the centre and cavalry on either side. Hannibal positioned his light infantry and Balearic slingers in the front to screen the rest of his deployment, that is, cavalry on the flanks and Spanish and Gallic infantry in the centre, some 40,000 strong. Hannibal knew the traditional Roman tactic was to smash through the centre of the opposing army so he instructed the infantry to slowly give ground to the Roman masses in a curve shape so as to envelop the enemy. The Carthaginian cavalry flanks both routed their opposing units and completed the envelopment to the sides and rear of the Roman infantry. Completely surrounded and tightly compressed, the Romans were slaughtered where they stood. Polybius says that only 3,500 soldiers managed to escape while 10,000 were taken prisoner, leaving 70,000 dead on the battlefield. To this day, Hannibal's victory at Cannae is regarded as one of the greatest tactical feats in military history and has been regarded as the worst defeat in Roman history. It gave courage to Rome's opponents around the Mediterranean. In the city of Carthage, the citizens became much more enthusiastic about the war and plans for supporting Hannibal were accepted. In Macedonia, the new young king there, Philip V, was encouraged to evict the Romans from the region of Illyria, which had 
recently been taken. Likewise in Syracuse, another young king allied with Hannibal, and in Sardinia a rebellion was festering following the Romans' ruthless subjugation of the islands after the First Punic War. What's more, the Italian peninsula's second largest city, Capua in Campania, defected to Hannibal. Rome was now on the back foot and forced to send away several legions to tackle the different problems it faced. This meant they could not afford to deploy as many men as they would have liked against Hannibal, and returned to the tactics of containing the great general, instead of tackling him head-on. Rome now faced its greatest challenge yet. Join me next week, when I will continue the story, including the Battle of Zama itself. Thank you for listening. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.